Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The news. As I turned, two things happened. I heard again, faintly, the screams of a woman and my face struck the noose dangling from the dense shadows of the rafters. The screams made little impression upon me, but the noose gave birth to a new thought. Not the thought that it was placed there to arouse, but another. It suggested an avenue of momentary escape from the snakes, nor was I long in availing myself of it. I felt the snout of the snake touch my bare leg as I sprang upward and seized the rope above the noose. I heard a loud hiss of rage as I clambered, hand over hand, toward the gloomy shadows where I hoped to find at least temporary refuge. The upper end of the rope was fastened to a metal eye-bolt set in a great beam. Onto this beam I clambered and looked down. The mighty serpent was hissing and writhing below me. He had raised a third of his body upward, and was endeavoring to coil about the dangling rope and follow me upward but it swung away and eluded his efforts. I doubted that a snake of his great girth could ascend this relatively tiny strand. But, not caring to take the chance, I drew the rope up and looped it over the beam. For the moment, at least, I was safe, and I breathed a deep sigh of relief. Then I looked about me. The shadows were dense and almost impenetrable, yet it appeared that the ceiling of the room was still far above me. About me was a maze of beams and braces and trusses. I determined to explore this upper region of the room of the seven doors. Standing upright upon the beam, I moved cautiously toward the wall. At the end of the beam I discovered a narrow walkway that, clinging to the wall, apparently encircled the room. It was two feet wide and had no handrail. It seemed to be something in the nature of a scaffolding left by the workman who had constructed the building. As I took my exploratory way along it, feeling each step carefully and brushing the wall with my hand, I again heard the agonized scream that had twice before attracted my attention, if not my keenest interest. For I was still more interested in my troubles than in those of some unknown female of this alien race and a moment later my fingers came in contact with something that drove all thoughts of screaming women from my mind. By feel, it was the frame of a door or of a window. With both hands I examined my find. Yes, it was a door. It was a narrow door about six feet in height. I felt the hinges. I searched for a latch, and at last I found it. Cautiously I manipulated it, and presently I felt the door move toward me. 
What lay beyond? Some new and fiendishly conceived form of death or torture, perhaps. Perhaps freedom. I could not know without opening that portal of mystery. I hesitated, but not for long. Slowly I drew the door toward me, an eye close to the widening crack. A breath of night air blew in on me. I saw the faint luminosity of a Venusian night. Could it be possible that with all their cunning the Thoris had inadvertently left this avenue of escape from this lethal chamber? I could scarcely credit it, yet there was naught that I could do but go on and chance whatever lay beyond. I opened the door and stepped out upon a balcony, which extended in both directions, until it passed from the range of my vision, beyond the curve of the circular wall to which it clung. At the outer edge of the balcony was a low parapet behind which I now crouched, while I reconnoitred my new situation. No new danger seemed to threaten me, yet I was still suspicious. I moved cautiously forward upon a tour of investigation, and again an agonized scream rent the silence of the night. This time it seemed quite close. Previously the walls of the building in which I had been imprisoned had muffled it. I was already moving in the direction of the sound, and I continued to do so. I was searching for an avenue of descent to the ground below, not for a damsel in distress. I am afraid that at that moment I was callous and selfish and far from chivalric. But if the truth be known, I would not have cared had I known that very inhabitant of Capdor, male and female, was being destroyed. Rounding the curve of the tower, I came in sight of another building standing but a few yards distant, and at the same instant I saw something that greatly aroused my interest and even my hope. It was a narrow causeway, leading from the balcony on which I stood to a similar balcony on the adjoining structure. Simultaneously the screams were renewed. They seemed to be coming from the interior of the building I had just discovered. It was not the screams, however, that lured me across the causeway, but the hope that I might find there the means of descent to the ground. Crossing quickly to the other balcony, I followed it to the nearest corner, and as I rounded it, I saw a light apparently shining from windows on a level with it. At first I was of a mind to turn back, lest, in passing the windows, I be discovered. But once again that scream burst upon my ears and this time it was so close that I knew it must come from the apartment from which the light shone. There was such a note of hopelessness and fear in it that I could no longer ignore the demand it made upon my sympathies, and setting discretion aside, I approached the window nearest me. It was wide open, and in the room beyond I saw a woman in the clutches of a man. The fellow was holding her down on a couch, and with a sharp dagger was pricking her. Whether he had it in his mind to kill her eventually or not was not apparent, his sole purpose at the moment seeming to be torture. The fellow's back was toward me, and his body hid the features of the woman, but when he pricked her and she screamed, he laughed a hideous, gloating laugh. I guessed at once the psychopathic type he represented, deriving pleasure from the infliction of pain upon the object of his maniacal passion. I saw him stoop to kiss her, and then she struck him in the face, and as she did so he half turned his head to avoid the blow, revealing his profile to me, and I saw that it was Musco, the Ongyan.
He must have partially released his hold upon her as he shrank aside, for the girl half rose from the couch in an effort to escape him. As she did so, her face was revealed to me, and my blood froze in rage and horror. It was Duar. With a single bound I cleared the sill and was upon him. Grasping him by the shoulder, I whirled him about, and when he saw my face he voiced a cry of terror and shrank back, drawing his pistol from its holster. Instantly I closed with him, grasping the weapon and turning its muzzle toward the ceiling. He toppled backwards across the couch, carrying me with him, both of us falling on top of Duar. Musco had dropped his dagger as he reached for his pistol, and now I tore the latter from his grasp and hurled it aside. Then my finger sought his throat. He was a large, gross man, not without strength, and the fear of death seemed to increase the might of his muscles. He fought with the desperation of the doomed. I dragged him from the couch, lest Duor be injured, and we rolled upon the floor, each intent upon winning a death hold upon the other. He was screaming for help now, and I redoubled my efforts to shut off his wind before his cries attracted the aid of any of his fellows. He was snapping at me like a savage beast as he screamed, alternately striking at my face and seeking to close upon my throat. I was exhausted from all that I had passed through and from loss of sleep and lack of food. I realized that I was weakening rapidly while Musco seemed to my frenzied imagination to be growing stronger. I knew that if I were not to be vanquished and Duar lost, I must overcome my antagonist without further loss of time. And so, drawing away from him to get greater distance for a blow, I drove my fist full into his face with all my remaining strength. For an instant he wilted, and in that instant my fingers closed upon his throat. He struggled and writhed and struck me terrific blows, but dizzy and half-stunned though I was, I clung to him until at last he shuddered convulsively, relaxed, and sank to the floor. If ever a man were dead, Musco appeared so as I arose and faced Duar, who, half-sitting, had crouched upon the cot where she had been a silent witness to this brief duel for possession of her. "'You!' she cried. "'It cannot be!' It is, I assured her. Slowly she rose from the couch as I approached it, and stood facing me as I opened my arms to press her to me. She took a step forward. Her hands went up. Then she stopped in confusion. No, she cried. It's all a mistake. But you told me that you love me, and you know that I love you, I said, bewildered. That is the mistake, she said. I do not love you. Fear, gratitude, sympathy, nerves distraught by all that I had passed through, brought strange words to my lips that I might not, not have meant. I felt suddenly cold and weary and forlorn. All hope of happiness was crushed in my breast. I turned away from her. I no longer cared what happened to me. But only for an instant did this mood possess me. No matter whether she loved me or not, my duty remained plain before me. I must get her out of Capdor, out of the clutches of the Thorists, and, if possible, return her to her father Mintep, king of Vepaja. I stepped to the window and listened. Musco's cries had not attracted succor in so far as I could perceive. No one seemed to be coming. 
and if they had not come in response to Duor's screams, why should they be attracted by Musco's? I realized that there was now little likelihood that anyone would investigate. I returned to the body of Musco and removed his harness to which was attached a sword that he had had no opportunity to draw against me. Then I retrieved his dagger and pistol. I now felt much better, far more efficient. It is strange what the possession of weapons will do, even for one not accustomed to bearing them, and until I had come to Venus I had seldom, if ever, carried a lethal weapon. I took the time now to investigate the room, on the chance that it might contain something else of use or value to us in our bid for liberty. It was a rather large room. An attempt had been made to furnish it ornately, but the result was a monument to bad taste. It was atrocious. At one end, however, was something that attracted my keenest interest and unqualified approval. It was a table laden with food. I turned to Duar. I am going to try to take you away from Nubal, I told her. I shall try also to return you to Vepja. I may not succeed, but I shall do my best. Will you trust me and come with me? How can you doubt it? she replied. If you succeed in returning me to Vepja, you will be well repaid by the honors and rewards that will be heaped upon you if my wishes prevail. That speech angered me and I turned upon her with bitter words on my lips, but I did not utter them. What was the use? I once more focused my attention upon the table. What I started to say, I continued, is that I shall try to save you, but I can't do it on an empty stomach. I'm going to eat before we leave this room. Do you care to join me? We shall need strength, she replied. I am not hungry, but it is wiser that we both eat. Musco ordered the food for me, but I could not eat it while he was present. I turned away and approached the table where she joined me presently, and we ate in silence. I was curious to know how Duwar had come to the Thora city of Capdor, but her cruel and incomprehensible treatment of me made me hesitate to evince any further interest in her. Yet presently I realized how childish was my attitude. How foolish it was of me not to realize that the strictness and seclusion of her previous life probably accounted for her frightened and distant manner now, and I asked her to tell me all that had happened since I had dispatched the Yangon with her toward the Sofal, and the moment that I discovered her in the clutches of Musco. There is not much to tell, she replied. You will recall how fearful the Angan was of returning to the ship, lest he be punished for the part he had taken in my abduction? They are very low creatures, with illy developed minds that react only to the most primitive forces of nature, self-preservation, hunger, fear. When we were almost above the deck of the Sofal, the Angan hesitated, and then turned back toward the shore. I asked him what he was doing why he did not continue on and place me aboard the ship, and he replied that he was afraid. He said they would kill him because he had helped to steal me. I promised him that I would protect him and that no harm would befall him, but he would not believe me. He replied that the Thorists, who had been his original masters, would reward him if he brought me back to them. That much he knew, but he had only my word that Camelot would not have killed him. He doubted my authority with Camelot. 
I pleaded and threatened, but all to no purpose. The creature flew directly to this hideous city and delivered me to the Thorists. When Musco learned that I had been brought here, he exercised his authority and claimed me as his own. The rest you know. And now, I said, we must find a way out of Capdor and back to the coast. Perhaps the Soulful has not departed. It is possible that Camelot has landed a party to search for us. It will not be easy to escape from Capdor, Dwar reminded me. As the Ungan brought me here, I saw high walls and hundreds of sentries. There is not much hope for us. End of chapter 3 With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Create a peaceful home with SaulGoodSounds.com. Just $10 a month offers a sanctuary of ad-free sounds ideal for family relaxation and children's bedtime. Reclaim tranquility. Visit SaulGoodSounds.com to start your journey to a calmer household.